0: Talked about the temptations of Christ. We hit on a number of different things, and as I looked around, I realized that a lot of you take notes, which is wonderful, because that means that you're listening and you're trying to say, well, okay, this is something I'm taking away here. This is something I'm taking away there. And then it struck me My teaching style is not very conducive to note-taking because I tend to just kind of go. So I'm reeling myself in today for your benefit and mine in hopes that it would be better for those who want to take notes. And with that being said, I'm going to cite a lot of scripture because my goal is to drive this point home about Jesus himself, not just going through these temptations for no obvious reason, right? The key is for you to recognize why it's so important that Christ himself, right? The God-man endured, these trials endured these tests and why his responses are so important and what they say to you and i so i'll give a recap and then we'll move on to the second temptation after the recap don't time me and i'm not looking at the clock so we ought to be okay so bear with me Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I'll read the whole thing, but we'll rest on verses 5 through 7. I say we'll rest there, but we'll have to jog to get there. So that's Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Okay? And it reads Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Very beautiful passage. So last week, kind of pulled you into chapter three a little bit to emphasize that this pericope, this story is not by itself. It's a part of a greater narrative, including the baptism of Jesus. Right? But even before that, I want you to think of this because what I harped on was this idea of sonship being king language. Right? To be called a son is to be called king. And so back in chapter three, we see the kingdom coming, right? We see the coming of the kingdom. John the Baptist goes before him and prepares the way of the Lord. And he proclaims what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we see the the coming of the kingdom. We see a herald in John the Baptist proclaiming your king is coming. Is that scene painted there? This forerunner announcing in advance to the people, get ready. Repent. Clean yourselves up. Turn away from your wickedness and turn towards God because he is coming. Your king is nearly here. And then we see the all too familiar scene where Jesus Approaches the Jordan, and John the Baptist sees him, and his response is to humble himself and say, "Lord, I have need to be baptized of you. Who, who, who am I to to even unloose the strap of your sandal? This is beyond my pay grade." And Jesus responds. that John should baptize him to fulfill all righteousness. That's Matthew 3, 15. And at the baptism, we now have what I'll call a coronation ceremony, right? We have the anointing of the king at this baptism where Jesus goes down into the water. He is brought up and the heavens open up and the father proclaims this is my son right son language this is my son in whom I am well pleased and the spirit of god comes and anoints him as that oil that is poured over the head of the king and covers him and fills him without a single drop being wasted and remains on him. Psalm two, right? Why do the nations rage, right? Psalm two verse seven, we read, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Kingship language. And speaking to David, the Lord says in 2 Samuel 7 I will raise up your offspring after you and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Once again, we see that same pattern, right? Sonship language being used to refer to the king. And Peter reminds us that this does not refer to David, because David's dead; his tomb's with us. This refers to Jesus. And then finally, when we get to chapter four, we have the testing or the the preparation of the king. Okay, so I'll read chapter four, verses one and two, and then I'll pick it apart and then we'll move on. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The first thing we see is that he was led by the spirit, the spirit who descended upon him and rested on him, remained on him, immediately leads him to the wilderness. He is led by the spirit. In other words, this is the plan of God. This is not some offshoot experience. This isn't coincidental. This is by the plan and will of God. It reminds us that the spirit is, in fact, with him. What was testified of in the baptism, right, that he descended on him and remained on him. It reminds us that the spirit never left him because it is he who is leading him. And it also serves as further witness to his sonship. Romans eight fourteen. Paul tells us that for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, Paul is talking about you and I. Paul is talking about Christians. Those of us who are faithful in Christ have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we can cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are, in fact, children of God. And Christ, who took on flesh, right, to be made like us, he too was led by the Spirit, who testifies as to who he is. The next thing we see is that he was led into the wilderness. This is still verse one. And we mentioned last time that this being led into the wilderness really identifies Jesus with Israel, right? Being led into the wilderness, identifies Jesus with Israel In Deuteronomy 1 we read and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son. The word just keeps popping up. Okay. identifies Jesus with Israel. And then we read in verse one that he was also led to be tempted. So, he was led by the spirit. He was led into the wilderness. And he was led to be tempted, not just tempted, but tempted by the devil, the great accuser. An important point to know is that the devil has to seek permission to tempt. He doesn't have free reign. He can't do whatever he so desires to touch God's anointed. The devil has to get permission. In Luke 22, Jesus reveals just that to us. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. In other words, he shows up and he says, I want him. I want to Test and try and tempt him. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But we're also reminded that there is absolutely no reason to fear the devil or his work. Because Jesus continues in that same passage and tells Simon, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. Likewise to the church in Smyrna, Christ commands his people, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested he says, you will have tribulation, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. In other words, no matter what comes your way, Jesus has the last say. And then we see that the temptations or for a purpose. We talked about that briefly, we said, for because he himself was tempted and that which he suffered, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. Hebrews two eighteen. Likewise he was tempted that he might sympathize with our weakness. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, says Hebrews 4.15. And also that he might prove himself to be the ideal Israelite. We said that's the, the role of the king. The king is supposed to be the one you look to, the one you look up to. He is supposed to be the very embodiment. Of the law of God, he is supposed to be the example to the people, the ideal Israelite. Our high priest is one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need that's hebrews 4 15 through 16. in verse 2 we read that jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights right and we said that this identifies jesus with moses and the prophets so the wilderness identifies him with israel the fasting identifies him with Moses and the prophets. If you remember, Moses entered the midst of the clouds and he went up to the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. Exodus twenty-four, eighteen. And so he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights, and he did not eat bread or drink water. In other words, he fasted. Exodus 34, 28. And it was during this time that Moses received the very words of the covenant. He received the 10 commandments. And God tells Moses and the people of Israel that I will raise up from them a prophet like you, a prophet like Moses, one who has known God face to face, One who will lead his people out of captivity and the bondage of slavery. I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among your brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. Deuteronomy 18. We also see in the Old Testament that Elijah fasted for 40 days and 40 nights as he journeyed to Horeb, the mountain of. And Elijah told the Lord, Lord, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets, and I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Does that sound familiar? If we were to think ahead throughout the gospels, those who have killed the prophets, the sons of those who have killed the prophets are now seeking to take the life of Jesus. And so this fasting identifies him with Moses and the prophets. And then at the end of verse two, we read that he was hungry. He was hungry. We said that Luke, in his account, places his genealogy in between the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. And we said that that emphasized Jesus's relation to Adam. Right. So in other words, it identifies Jesus with humanity. So, Jesus is identified with Israel in the wilderness. Jesus is identified with Moses and the prophets in his fasting. And Jesus is identified with humanity here. He suffered. And he endured temptation as a man. Later on in Matthew 21, we read now in the morning when he returned to the city, he became hungry. And in John 4, we read that Jesus was wearied from his journey. He told the woman of Samaria, give me a drink. In other words, we can't forget about the humanity of Jesus, truly God, yes, truly man, yes. And in Hebrews two fourteen, we read, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. And in verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation propitiation, for the sins of his people. All important points. That's our job. That's us getting to the text. Still with me? Okay, getting head shakes. I told you it's going to be like five hours today. All right. So then we got to the first temptation, right? Jesus is hungry. He's starving. it 40 days. Lord, want some food. Satan shows up and he says, these rocks. If you truly are the son of God. Then turn these stones into loaves of bread. And we said, well. I mean, it seems to be a reasonable request. Turn these stones into loaves of bread. I mean, you're hungry. We, with the blessing of the totality of Scripture, we know, I mean, he makes bread from nothing. He multiplies three fish and five loaves. Most certainly he can turn stones into bread, right? It's not an unreasonable thing to do. But why was Jesus in the wilderness to begin with? Why was Jesus fasting to begin with? Why was Jesus in his current circumstance being tempted by the devil? Because it was the will of God. It was the will of the father that he be in that wilderness. And he identified with his people. It was the will of the father that he be identified with Moses and the prophets. It was the will of the father that he be identified with humanity and all their struggles. And so it is the will of the father that he fast. It is God who placed him in this circumstance. And the devil says, You're weak, you're tired, you're hungry, and you have been declared before all, Son of God. That should come with some privileges. Turn these loaves into bread. And Jesus responds, with a passage that's directed towards humanity. And he says, man shall not live by bread alone. He doesn't say that man doesn't need bread at all. He doesn't say that food was not essential for sustaining life. What he says is it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, Jesus quotes scripture. and say scripture is the word of God, right? These are words coming from the mouth of God and God has given such, such life in his words. He, Jesus speaks later and he tells the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because in it you think you have eternal life. And he says, you do. Because it speaks to me. Right. I'm eternal life. The word itself, the scriptures that we have are essential. They are important because they are God speaking. But there's another sense to it. As I mentioned, in one sense, Jesus gives testimony completely concerning the importance, the significance of the commands, God's self revelation through the scriptures. But in another sense, it implies more circumstance. One Hebrew scholar suggests that the saying is better understood as by everything which God is pleased to appoint. See that phrase, right? every word that comes from God is what's called the Hebraism. It's like we all have little sayings here and there, but we get the sense because, well, there are sayings. Well, we don't speak ancient Hebrew, so we don't necessarily understand the, the, the full sense of it. But I believe both are in play here. Jesus quotes the scripture showing the importance and the significance of God's actual words and commands, but likewise, it was the will of God that led him there. It's the will of God that led him to the wilderness, the will of God uh, that he fasted, the will of God that he be tempted. Thus, he relies on the Father and the Spirit, for they are unified. They're one. And to go against that will for fleshly reasons would be to create division and disunity in the Godhead. And frankly, that just doesn't make much sense. And so he quotes Scripture and he says. That I'm not supposed to yield to the desires of the flesh and neglect the things of God. Now that speaks a lot to something, but I don't want to say it just yet. I'm going to hold off. So we get to our text today. Then the devil... Took him to the holy city. Pay attention to the verbs. Early on, the devil came to him. And now in verse 5, we read that the devil took him. So the devil came, and now the devil took. Do we see that? The devil came and the devil took. And he couldn't do either of those without permission. Jesus says to Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. And so we're reminded that this is not some offshoot. Jesus is not being carried along by a rogue devil. He's actually being allowed by God to do exactly what he's doing. For though his heart and his Desires are to tempt Jesus for evil. It is God's purpose That that be used to his glory We see the two happening So the devil took him to the holy city this holy city is Jerusalem now We could argue back and forth about whether he was physically taken to Jerusalem, whether this is a vision uh, or an experience in the mind. I don't know. The scripture says the devil took him. And so as far as I'm concerned, the devil took him to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. To the holy city. In Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 6, 6, we read, but I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. It is the city of David. It's where Solomon built the temple. It's where the ark was set, in which we find the covenant of the Lord that he made with his people Israel. He's being taken to the pinnacle of the temple. And the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Now, what just happened? So Jesus displays perfectly his reliance on the very word of God. And then the devil picks up on that. And the devil says, well, this is. What God says over here. You so dependent on the oracles of God. Well, here are the oracles of God. It is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands. They will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. I mean, think of the imagery there. Every step Jesus takes, you have angels just crowding around him, making sure, nope, nope, We got to make sure this foot steps perfectly. Oh, there's a pebble right there. We don't want you to get a sore foot. We'll blow it out of the way. There's this imagery that they're padding on every single side of Jesus, and not a single thing should be happening to him because God said, that he will command his angels concerning you. That you won't even strike your foot against a stone. You're so dependent on scripture. Well, here's scripture. You're so reliant on the oracles of God. Where here are the oracles of God. So show me. Show me. Throw yourself down. Oh, man, those angels are going to swoop in and lift you up and set you down gently on the ground. Prove it. Who's being tested here? Jesus really being tested? Or is the devil putting God to the test? My mind goes to Job. The devil is seeking to test God by planting seeds of doubt in Jesus. Job chapter one, verse 10, Satan tells God, have you not put a hedge around him? Not just around him, but around his house, around everything that he has on every side. Have you not done these things? That's why he serves you. And the devil is quoting Psalm 91. I mean, a beautiful psalm. But he quotes it out of context. Two verses prior, it says, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. What comes first? Did the hedge come first? Right. That that, that padding on every side. Did the hedge come first because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the most high, who is my refuge? No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. And so being found in God, making him our dwelling place. God says, "I will keep you from evil." <laughs> Where is the evil, Satan? You call me to throw myself down from this pinnacle of the temple, and 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 you say that God will command His angels to come swooping in and and prevent me from even scratching my foot on a stone. Where's the evil? What is it that God is to protect him from? Is standing on a ledge and jumping off. Is that what God is to protect us from? Or are they the temptations of the evil one who he strengthens us to to endure those temptations, to not yield to them, to not fear him? Jesus says to him again. It is written. So as the devil seeks to sow these seeds of doubt into the heart of Jesus, he again refers back to the oracles of God. And it reads, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6, uh, verse 16. And this is a passage where the people of Israel, while they were In the wilderness, they quarreled with Moses. Give us water to drink. And thirsting for water, they said, why did you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. Moses elaborates on this, explaining that they tested the Lord. Exodus 17 by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And so I asked the question, who's being tested here? Because Jesus says, don't put the Lord, your God to the test. God commands You shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. And so what's happening is that Jesus is focusing on what the Lord commands him to do in his humanity. The devil is focusing on Something that really has nothing to do with Jesus. Take a look at it. In 4 6, he will command his angels. In 4 7, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. We get so consumed about what others are going to do or what what God's going to do. But he was so clear about what he commanded you and I to do. And Jesus says, this is what I was commanded to do. This is what the people of God were commanded to do. We were commanded not to put the Lord to the test. What he does with his angels is his business. Now, I said I wanted to say something earlier. I'll say it now because I think it's become a little more clear. In four four, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What we have is a perfect picture of God's sovereignty. The Lord, who is creator over all things, right? He rules and sustains his creation. Our circumstances are within his will. Within his decree. And so Jesus is recognizing and submitting to the sovereignty of God. In all circumstances of life. And in 4-7, what we see is human responsibility. See, that doesn't go away. You and I have still been commanded. Yes, God is in control of all things, but God has spoken to us in his word, and has given us instruction. And we, you and I, those who are in Christ, are to obey. We are to do. We are responsible. And so when thinking about standing on the pinnacle of the temple and being told, Throw yourself off. God's going to do this. And he's going to do that. To do so would be a complete rejection of your personal responsibility. I know I'm talking too much. I told you it'd be long yes how do we apply it in that first temptation we see that we are to have utter dependence on god trusting in the sufficiency of his word recognizing that he's not absent but is ever present in the midst of every circumstance it's recognizing his sovereignty submitting wholly to his will. What does that look like? Well, it starts by knowing what his will is. Jesus is quoting scripture, is he not? He didn't quote a personal conversation he had with the father. He quoted what God had revealed his people. And so shouldn't we as children of God likewise seek to know his will by studying his word. And in the second temptation we see that we must not Ignore human responsibility, personal responsibility. God is crystal clear in His instruction. The Spirit bears witness inside of you, He pricks our conscience. There's really no excuse. Because if, in fact, we believe, number one, that God is sovereign over all and that even my present circumstance, he has not left me alone. If we believe that. Then shouldn't that give us freedom to do. Comfort. And assurance in knowing that in doing what is his will, in doing what he himself has commanded me to do. That that is what most glorifies him. If you ever find yourself struggling, going back and forth, Lord, is this your will for my life? What am I to do? Where am I to go? Is this one of those situations where I'm supposed to take some leap of faith? That's what that sounds like, right? Standing on the pinnacle of the temple, just throw yourself off. Leap of faith. It's like a uh, scene out of Indiana Jones. I'm not the only one who likes Indiana Jones, I hope. Right. The last crusade, he steps off the cliff and. Invisible path just shows up out of nowhere, I don't believe I'd take that step. Because I'm not going to be chasing behind some chalice or something that somebody drank out of 2000 years ago, thinking it has some magic power. Is that what we're supposed to be doing? Taking some blind leap of faith and and saying, well, it says in there that he's going to send his angels and he's going to do this. Stop worrying about God and his business and do what God has commanded you and I to do. Be holy, for he is holy. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be one, for I am one. All these beautiful commands that God places in his word for us, and we are too busy thinking about not what he tells us to do, but what he said he was going to do. God will take care of God's business. And so we ought do what he has commanded us to do. And we know what he has commanded us to do. Because he has spoken it. And preserved it. in his word. That phrase that's constantly repeated, it is written. It is written. Not to get too technical, but that's in the perfect tense, which means that it's done and it still matters. It's not some one-off that gets cast aside. You and I benefit from the same word that Jesus quotes 2000 years ago. Ought we not treated the way he did? The very words of God that speak so loudly into our lives and guide us on how you and I ought to proceed and to live this life for the glory of God. I'll stop just short of two hours. Let's pray.